When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm August Baker. We're talking today with Dr. Joel Whitebook about his book, Freud, an Intellectual Biography. Dr. Whitebook is a philosopher and psychoanalyst who maintained a private practice for 25 years and is on the faculty at Columbia University. Welcome, Dr. Whitebook. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I wanted to know to start, um, if there's some uh, more you'd like to say to the listeners about your background, um, your intellectual orientation, your influences, mentors, uh, things like that that might be helpful for people approaching the book. Yes, I think that would be a good idea. Uh, My general background uh, has been in critical theory in the tradition of the Frankfurt School. Uh, I started out as a philosopher, and then after completing a doctorate in philosophy, uh, became a psychoanalyst. But the type of philosophy that I was oriented towards, or the school that I was trained in, which, as I mentioned, was a Frankfurt School, uh, was one of the first, if not the first, group of philosophers and social scientists in Europe to take Freud seriously, to teach him in the university. And in fact, they even promoted his receiving the Goethe Prize in Frankfurt. And he was a pillar of their project, Uh, along with Marx and Hegel and Max Weber. They uh, attempted to formulate a critical theory of modernity by integrating these four major figures. So a main element of their project was the integration of psychoanalysis into a critical theory of society, or you might say a critical theory of modernity. And that's the project which I have tried to pursue and continue to pursue. And you could describe my work in recent years, is an attempt to update uh, what earlier critical theorists in the Frankfurt School tradition have done uh, in terms of psychoanalysis and critical theory by bringing more recent developments in psychoanalysis to bear uh, on critical theory. I see. Okay, that's that's very interesting. And what were the four figures you said, Freud, Marx, who were the other two? I would say uh, uh, Marx, Hegel, Freud, and Max Weber. Okay. And um, I, uh, I wanted to note um, also that uh, you say in the beginning of your book that your aim is not to here to provide a comprehensive biography. Um, there are many of those. And you say you want to provide a narrative of the relation between Freud's life and his work, which is a very psychoanalytic thing to do, and and you want to try to do it without being reductive. Um, And you say you want to do it from um, the perspective of two particular themes. Uh, Could you tell the listeners about those two themes? Uh, Yes. Uh, When I was asked to do the book by Cambridge University Press, uh, it was specifically... Uh, to be an intellectual biography, which meant that my task was to uh, was to 
interpret the development of Freud's thinking against the backdrop of what was going on in his life and in the general culture. So when I say it's not a general biography, what I meant by that more specifically was that it was an intellectual biography. Excuse me. And the two themes which organize my narrative are what I've called the break with tradition, uh, which tries to locate Freud in the historical uh, developments of his day and in terms of the theorists who are trying to understand those developments. And then also the second theme was what I call the missing mother, which has to do with the fact that the theme of the mother is sorely underdeveloped in Freud's thinking. Okay. that That's very helpful. Um, would you, um, I, I, I mean, as I read the book, which I really enjoyed, I, I was thinking you're looking at his life and his work. Um, and, but it, it's not just, um, you know, here's his early childhood and here's his theories. It, you're also looking at his, um, you know, his, his love life, you might say, uh, his passions and his battle with illness. Um, so you're kind of intertwining his, theories and his logic, his theories and his life throughout his life. Is that accurate? Yes. And I'd say, I'd say that, but I'd specify it even more. Uh, There are sort of two schools of thought when it comes to relating a person's life to their work. One school of thought is what you might call the Kantian, for lack of a better word. And that says that a person's biography uh, shouldn't be taken into consideration in appreciating their work or in evaluating or interpreting their work, but that the work should stand in, in its own right and, its, and be appro- approached in its own terms. In other words, you shouldn't uh, try and understand a uh, Mozart symphony or opera in terms of what we know about Mozart's, Mozart's life. And that goes for any great thinker. And the, the worry there is uh, reductionism. They want to guard against mm. having a person's uh, work reduced to its genesis and the person's life history. And uh, you know, often turns into a sort of gossip where you try and uh, uncover the, uh, the dirty linen in a person's life as a way of reducing their work. Now, that's a valid concern, but they go too far in the other extreme and just want to consider the work in, uh, in its own right without any consideration of its genesis and the development of the person's life. The uh, other extreme, yeah, go ahead. No, no I, I, that's a good point because you are talking about uh, new developments in psychoanalytic theory throughout the book. Well, let me, let, I'll come to that after okay. I make one more point. Mm-hmm. The other poll, which, as I've already indicated, is reductionism, uh, which you found in earlier forms of either vulgar Marxism or vulgar Freudianism, or now you might even say in neuroscience, which tries to re- reduce a person's accomplishments, uh, to debunk them in a way, by reducing them to something, uh, some lower level explanation. In vulgar Freudian terms, it would be in terms of their psychosexual life in vulgar Marxist terms. It would be in terms of their economic situation. And today you might say in neuropsychological terms, it would be reducing them to their brain chemistry. So that's the other pull that has, it's a cilia and a charybdis. And that's the charybdis as opposed to the Kantian cilia, which has to be, uh, which has to be avoided. Now, the third position which I would say is the truly psychoanalytic position and one which Freud himself advocated is trying to understand the relationship between what is called genesis and validity, how certain uh, things, accomplishments uh, arose out of the conditions of a person's biography, but somehow achieved a, uh, an objective validity of their own, which, while being related to 
uh, those circumstances isn't reducible to them. Mm. Of course, he postulated the idea of sublimation uh, as a marker to explain this process whereby genetic material gets turned into valid cultural objects, you might say. Right. Um, I keep thinking about this um, quotation that you have here, um, and maybe this is related. Uh, you talk about Freud coming to understand the human mind as naturally oriented toward the external world and resisting an attempt to redirect its gaze inward. And uh, you have a quote that he wrote to Albert Einstein, all our attention is directed to the outside whence dangers and satisfaction beckon. From the inside, we want only to be left in peace. So if someone tries to turn our awareness inward, then our whole organization resists. Just as, for example, the esophagus and the urethra resist any attempt to reverse their normal direction of passage. And you say this observation helps us understand the widespread hostility towards psychoanalysis. You want me to comment on that? Yes, please. Yeah, I, I make several points. Uh, first of all, uh, one way I would say, a very interesting way, or actually uh, the way that uh, I would put it, and uh, I uh, take this largely from somebody who uh, deeply influenced me and who I draw on and mention in the book, but who's not that well known in this country, namely a Greek philosopher and psychoanalyst who lived in Paris for many years named Cornelius Castoriadis. And Castoriadis argued that Freud's project, uh, or what, what, the, what we should take from Freud's project, is the attempt to understand the relationship between psychic reality and social reality, between the inner world and the social world. And of course, one could argue that Freud's great discovery in the interpretation of the dreams was psychic reality, that we are citizens of two worlds. We live in a in the world of psychic reality, and we live in the world of social reality, and that the real interesting question and the goal is to try and understand the uh, relationship between the two. Now, the next point is... Uh, you know, there are many reasons why there is a, uh, many explanations for why there is such a resistance, indeed a hostility towards psychoanalysis, uh, going back to the fact that uh, Freud, uh, Freud uh, argued or uh, discovered, you might say, infantile sexuality, or that he said that we have innate aggressive drives which seems to contradict the uh, conventional uh, picture of human beings as being essentially good and sociable, or even going further, that we have a death instinct. I mean, all these are help to explain or are good reasons for accounting for the hostility or resistance, as analysts say, to psychoanalysis. But in the quote that uh, you read, uh, that points to another resistance uh, which I think is equally powerful and which is only uh, being appreciated more in recent years, uh, which is uh, people's resistance uh, to psychic reality, uh, resistance to the fact that we are determined to a large extent by inner events which we don't have uh, great control over, or as Freud put it, the ego is not master in his own house. And one of the difficulties in uh, clinical work and uh, helping somebody to get involved in a psychoanalytic process is helping them to accept the fact uh, that uh, there is this powerful psychic reality and uh, that uh, one is better off dealing with it than leaving it alone. I mm. mean, all too often, uh, patients, people in treatment, would much rather attribute 
their problems to the external world, to society, to their uh, to their spouses, to their bosses, what have you. For some reason, it seems to be a fact that it's easier uh, to uh, attribute things to the external world than to look within. And one final point. Uh, I think today, uh, when we live in a world where we are constantly distracted by screens, everywhere you go, you go to your doctor's office, there's a television, you go to the train stations, there's a television. Even now when you go to a gas station, they have these little screens while you're filling yeah. filling your yep. tank. And you know, you, all I have to do is walk down the street and everybody's got their nose buried in a phone. And today... There is so much, we are bombarded by so much external stimuli that it makes the task of turning inward even that much more difficult. And, you know, people, there are innumerable reasons for the decline of psychoanalysis in today's culture, but I would say this is perhaps a more recent one, but one of the very powerful ones. That's a, a very powerful point. I. When I just, I maybe uh, could you uh, give a quick o- overview of um, the Frankfurt School? Because when I hear you saying we're going to be combining um, Freud and Marx, I'm thinking of that as Freud being more the internal and Marx more the external. Well, and- one way to understand that, I mean, uh, they were a group of base of uh, German Jewish philosophers and social scientists who started out in the 20s, but really uh, consolidated in the 30s at the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt. <coughs> Excuse me. And while they were generally Marxists in, the orient- in their orientation, uh, they were never dogmatic and they were always anti-Stalinist. But when in the 30s, uh, one had an economic crisis, the Great Depression, which according to Marxist predictions should have produced a socialist revolution, it in fact produced just the opposite. Namely, a large part of the European working class was turning to fascism. And this was a anomaly, to put it mildly, that any Marxist had to confront. And uh, and methodologically, uh, the critical theorists at in the Frankfurt School concluded that the problem was that Marxism didn't contain what's referred to as a subjective uh, uh, didn't uh, didn't study the subjective dimension. In other right. words, consciousness subjectivity was basically reduced to material conditions. So in order to explain the uh, fact that the uh, working class hadn't fulfilled its historical mission, but on the contrary, had done just the opposite, they concluded, A, that Marxian theory had to be augmented by psychology, and that Freudian depth psychology was the uh, best to do it, and that Uh, they could deploy uh, Freudian categories to try and explain why this had occurred. And uh, under the uh, directorship of Max Horkheimer, uh, they produced a series of volumes called Authority in the Family, which tried to explain the makeup of uh, the uh, German working class in terms of its peculiar fa- their peculiar family relations and how this gave rise to a, an authoritarian uh, character or sensibility. Oh, that's helpful. Thank you. And, and um, then, as I understand, your project would be to take some of the more recent developments in psychoanalysis and, um, and build them in. And uh, as I understand it, much of that uh, is under the uh, label of um, pre-Oedipal as opposed to Oedipal, or the or what you call the missing mother. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, 
one could argue uh, that the most significant development after Freud's death, which is to say in psychoanalysis since the Second World, is the so-called pre-Oedipal turn, which is the turn towards understanding the first three years of life and the relationship, the infant-child relationship. I mean, my thesis in the book is that Freud was uh, basically a um, theorist of what he called the father complex. When you read his case studies one after another, it's always a polemic for the importance of the father complex, the Oedipus complex. Uh, he referred to the Oedipus complex as the nuclear complex of the neuroses. He, in his cultural writings, most notably in Totem and Taboo and Moses and Monotheism, he explained the origins of religion in terms of the Oedipus complex. So when the Frankfurt School, uh, not only the Frankfurt School, but most uh, psychoanalytically oriented social theorists uh, prior to the 60s say, and there are a few exceptions, uh, adopted Freudian theory uh, to explain social phenomena, they basically employed the, his Oedipal theory, his theory of the father complex. So that after the Second World War, and we could discuss the reasons for this, uh, there was a, uh, an intense interest in the early mother-infant relationship developed. And uh, a number of the most important psychoanalysts after the war, and I would say Donald Winnicott is the most important here, uh, started uh, exploring the first three years of life, the early separation individuation process. Uh, and there was, that was followed by infant research and attachment theory. So the great augmentation of psychoanalytic theory has been the, the addition of pre-Oedipal theory to Oedipal theory. So when I am trying to expand and continue the project of the Frankfurt School, which, as I said, is to try and integrate critical theory and psychoanalysis, what I've tried to do is to examine how we would rethink some of the central problems uh, using pre-Oedipal rather than Oedipal theory. Interesting. Oh, that, that, that makes it uh, very clear. And I, um, I guess to help understand it, could you help uh, explain in treatment what a um, classical, how treatment proceed and psychoanalytic treatment proceeds for a um, classical patient, um, one with, you know, that w- that is seen as an Oedipus complex versus a unclassical one with pre-Oedipal uh, issues. Yeah. Uh, Perhaps Winnicott put it best. He said Freud basically uh, not ignored, but radically, uh, radically didn't pay sufficient attention to the first three years of life. That is the years of life when separation individuation takes place until a what's called a unit self is in for, is formed, the consolidation of self, which takes place in the third or fourth year. So Freud assumed the existence of a unit self, which had an interior structure, which he said was made up of the id, ego, and superego, and that this person interacted with other unit selves and uh, suffered from what were called intrapsychic conflicts. That is, conflicts that occurred uh, within a self that was already unified in form. And his approach to psychoanalysis, his clinical technique, his understanding of the psychoanalytic setting was all predicated on the idea that he was a unit self and he was dealing with other unit selves 
and that the analysis involved the interaction between these unit cells. What this meant in practice was that, I mean, this is how he described what, what, what was referred to as the classical patient or the good neurotic. And in practice, what this meant uh, was that these people were basically able to make use of the psychoanalytic setup or what's called the psychoanalytic f- frame and be able to abide by the structure of psychoanalysis and come so many times a week and free associate and, uh, and accept interpretations and would be helped in terms of interpretation. Now, one of the things that, whether or not this classical patient ever existed is a disputed issue, but we won't get into that. Uh, One of the things that led to the pre-Oedipal turn after the war, and this was especially true in London, but also in the States, uh, that analysts were seeing more and more patients who couldn't be reached with a classical method. Not only couldn't be helped by it, but often couldn't be reached by it. Uh, they sort of, you might say, couldn't accept the rules of the game uh, uh, that were necessary to uh, involve oneself in psychoanalysis. So in order to understand this, the new patient, uh, the post-classical patient, the non-neurotic patient, however you want to call it, uh, analysts began examining uh, pathology, which uh, stems from the earliest, earlier phases of life, relationship to the early mother, uh, the uh, separation individuation process, uh, as I said, the formation of a uh, stable unit cell, which meant that those issues themselves became the topic of psychoanalytic interventions. Uh, we're called pathologies of the self. And uh, in addition to, or before, I mean, there's difference of opinions about this, and it deals, it varies from case to case, before dealing with Oedipal issues having to do with later stages of development, it's necessary to address issues with the patient that stem from these early uh uh, forms of what's self-pathology or what's sometimes referred to as narcissistic pathology. I, th- I thought um, this probably relates. You, you say um, when these people, meaning unclassical patients, are able to articulate their experience, they provide us, and you're, you're referring to Loewald, uh, Loewald maintains, with insight into the psychotic core of the personality which is rarely accessible in higher functioning individuals, though it is present in all of us. Maybe that's what you meant by whether there ever was a uh, classical patient. Could you speak to this um, psychotic core? Well, I mean, this is also somewhat a matter of contention. But if you assume, as I do, and as Lowell does, uh, by the way, he's one of the, I would say, one of the most important theorists after Freud and one who has influenced me enormously, uh, that we begin life in some sort of undifferentiated or symbiotic stage, or a stage of merger with the mother, and that development consists in uh, moving away from, differentiating oneself away from that originally undifferentiated stage, uh, then well, if, you, if you, you take that, that line of, of analysis uh, and you also believe that earlier stages of development aren't just eradicated, but stum- somehow s- stay active in the psyche or somehow sedimented in psychic life, uh, then you can assume that residues of that undifferentiated, undifferentiated stage, uh, what he calls a psychotic core. Psychotic meaning because it's a merged state. Uh, okay. The psychotic core exists in all of us. It's just in patients who uh, are able to uh, 
for whatever developmental reasons, uh, achieve a higher degree of individuation and a more firmly uh, structured and stable self, uh, that core is uh, further buried. But in patients, the post-classical patients I've been mentioning, uh, the, uh, that stage remains uh, less well buried and is more accessible and is encountered more easily than it is. You know, the neurotic patient, the so-called high-functioning patient, uh, in some way doesn't have access to mm -hmm. the more archaic, or it's more difficult for them to gain access to the more archaic parts of the personality having mm -hmm. to do with this psychotic core. So that when we deal with the uh, less high-functioning patients, I want to use terms that are non-judgmental non non here, right? Uh, uh, non-stigmatizing. Non so that when we deal with the less high-functioning patients, we often gain insight into deeper levels of the psyche that aren't accessible with the higher-functioning patients. And as Goldwald says, they can teach us. And what in Winnicott, he actually he took this from Winnicott. Believe they have a lot to teach us about what Winnicott said, what life is all about. And Freud, of course, would be a very, very high functioning patient who um, may not have had so much access. Well, he didn't go through an, ana an analysis either. Um, well, wait, I want to I want to say something. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I mean the the. Uh, received interpretation of Freud, which he himself promulgated and which analysts believed for many years, uh, was that he was a high-functioning neurotic patient mm -hmm. who hadn't suffered any early traumas and that he was very well put together. But what research into his early life in Freiburg uh, by historians and by uh, academics and Freud studies has revealed in, re in recent years, and this is one of the points of departure of my uh, narrative, is that in fact his first three years in Freiburg and his relation to his mother was really quite traumatic. Right. And that this presentation of himself as this high-functioning, rational well-integrated, quotes, normal masculine person was in many ways defensive. Mm -hmm. And what he had done was actually split off and repress the earlier stages in his own life. And the psychic phenomena that are attached to them. Right. And that, because he couldn't, because he had denied this part of himself, Mm -hmm. because he had dissociated himself from his earlier years and his more primitive experience, he wasn't able to see it in his patients and incorporate it in his theory. And that's, ah. that's why I have the thesis of the missing mother. And part of my, uh, what I attempted to do was to trace the ramifications of this throughout the history of his, of his theory. That's that's very helpful. Yes, and I think uh, another bit of new research uh, is the um, letters uh, to uh, or the letters from Wilhelm uh, or the letters that Freud wrote to Wilhelm Fleiss. Well, right, between both of them. Um, they were only available in 2011, yeah. so that's another piece of something that was hid. That also um, you make a great use of here you know we don't have a lot of time but do you want to talk about some of the early i mean there's just so much to talk about some of the early trauma um that that has been revealed well i before or, before doing that if we yeah. can do both i'll try and be quick i mean I wanna, i'd like to say something about the fleece letters yes um, the freud establishment uh which was made up of heinz hartman and ernst chris and Anna freud uh, believe that in order to protect Freud's reputation and the fragile reputation of psychoanalysis, uh, they couldn't 
they had to uh, suppress uh, some of the more controversial controversial material in his life. So when the fleece letters were first discovered uh, in the 50s, uh, a very censored, expurgated uh, uh, edition of them was brought out by Anna Freud and Ernst Chris, and uh, that was sort of the official view uh, that was followed until Anna Freud died in the 80s, and Jeffrey Mason brought out a complete unexpurgated version. And what this, uh, what the complete letter, and by the way, the letters are fantastic. They are almost, I would say, a piece of literature. And uh, it's like an unprecedented, it offer, they offer you an unprecedented uh, view into the inner workings of a man's mind and a struggle to, and his struggle to understand himself. And also, you see what a uh, compassionate and thoroughly human person he was. Mm-hmm. It's not just Freud, warts and all. It's Freud and all his humanity. And right. the Freud establishment, in some way, one thought they had to deny his humanity. And my experience was in reading them and seeing him in all his vulnerability rather than turning me off to him, it made me appreciate him much more. But once you had the fleece letters where he gave some hints about what had actually gone on in his first three years in Freiburg, this led to research into those years, which uncovered how problematic and traumatic his relationship to his mother had been. Right. And of course, the fleece letters also refer to... And there's some, you know, homosexual or homoerotic excitement there. You have this quote where um, Freud is anticipating an upcoming Congress, and he wrote to Fleiss, I bring nothing but two open ears and one temporal lobe lubricated for reception. Uh, Obviously, this is a long, uh, I I don't know if you've read the biography of uh, Kohut by Strozier, but the uh, the way the psychoanalytic establishment, you know, frowned on homosexuality or needed to distance itself from homosexuality, is a big big part of the story, at least in the U.S. Well, I think it's a, a big part of the story of the way the Freud establishment tried to uh, control the publication of these things. I mean, I quote a feminist theorist. Uh, I think her name was Garner, I don't remember, who said when she first read the fleece letters, she said it occurred to her that these were love letters. And right. although we have no evidence that they was ever enacted, completed sexually, uh, he was passionately in love with this man. And the homosexual uh, love is, you know, is, is not just can't be denied. It's like the passage you just quoted, I mean, it's there to be observed as is the extent of his cocaine usage, which right. uh, Jones said ended, uh, you know, uh, before, uh, I think, in the late uh, 1880s. But in fact, it went on to uh, 1896. So they felt like they had to uh, bury these facts in order to preserve his reputation. And in addition to the pre oedipal turn in psychoanalysis, I think the fact that the culture has become much more tolerant towards homosexuality and the analytic world has made a valiant attempt to uh, make amends for the past and revise its views on homosexuality, it makes it much more possible for us to view his uh, homosexual dimension of his relationship to Fleece as well as to Jung uh, to view it in a much more neutral way. Right. I thought it was really um, convincing to me as an outline of him, uh, first uh, Freud first falling in love at 16 and then kind of being, tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, being kind of overwhelmed by that, turning to work, then falling in love with 
uh, Martha, and then having a um, the passion of a a love affair which is separated by distance and put into writing. And then once he gets married, um, and Martha becomes the mother at home, there's kind of like, well, where does all of this energy go? And then Wilhelm Wilhelm Fleiss was there, and it went right there. That's yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. That's the overview I I got from your book. Yes, and there's one more point to it uh, that you know it's often been said that Freud was an epistolary lover. Yeah, uh, he was separated. Uh, from Martha for six or seven years during their so-called betrothal, their engagement. Martha's mother didn't particularly like Zygmunt, and she grabbed her daughter out of Vienna and dragged her to Hamburg so she'd be away from him. So for the greater part of their engagement, he wasn't he didn't see her that much. And this uh, love affair took place to a large degree in his fantasy life, which was recorded in these wonderful letters, all of which have been recently published. So he was able to maintain this passionate and idealized love as long as the real object wasn't there. And then when right. he finally had to move in with her and, you know, see her doing the dishes, or I guess they didn't do dishes exactly. or whatever, it sort of collapsed. And then all of that passion was redirected towards Fleece. But again, Fleece lived in Berlin. And he didn't see him that often, and he carried on an epistolary, largely an epistolary love affair with Fleece. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the That's... one of the hardest tasks for all of us, and one of the uh, tasks in most therapies and analyses is learning to uh, give up our idealized fantasies and our narcissistic self protection and love a real human being with all their flaws. And it won't conform to our wishes. <laughs> and another, um, I guess, uh, one, at one point you talk about transference, um, and you know you say that it's often questioned what Freud's fundamental discovery was, and is it the meaning of dreams, the existence of psychic reality, free association, or even the psychoanalytic setup itself? You note that the question is impossible to answer. But you also talk about uh, transference and the way it's enacted both inside and outside of the psychoanalytic setting, and that is a prime candidate for his fundamental discovery. And then you talk about, I wondered if you could talk about the trans, uh, his relationship with Wilhelm Fleiss as a transference drama and as having you know, both an Oedipal and a pre-Oedipal level. Uh I think you said that in the pre-Oedipal stratum, um, Fleiss was in the role of uh, some uh, a breast mother that you wanted to surrender to, and on the Oedipal level, uh, Freud was in a what he considered a passive homosexual attitude. Yeah. Uh, first of all, people tend to think of transference as just one thing, but uh, transferences assume many forms deriving from all layers of psychic life and stages of development. And with Fleece, I mean, I don't remember who it was. Somebody observed, you know, Fleece actually became his doctor and started uh, intervening oh. on him, operating on his nose and cauterizing it. We're not exactly sure what he did, but he did operate on him. So I think we all know from our experience as little children that one develops these powerful transferences to their doctors. I mean, they're seen as these very powerful figures, these authority figures, these magicians who who uh, carry the magic of curing you. So sure, the and fact, especially surgeons. Especially surgeons, yeah. So the fact that Fleece became his doctor meant that Fleece was open to all the transferences that are uh, associated with the figure of the father doctor and uh which meant he was an authority figure he had all the scientific not not even magical knowledge you know i i, I entitle he addresses one letter to him dear magician <laughs> excuse me and you know and the sort of 
passive homosexual mode. I mean, that's Freud's term for him. For him, male homosexuality was the passive feminine role or the passive homosexual role. I mean, as you said, as the surgeon who had actually penetrated his body, Freud's homosexual desires to be penetrated by him uh, were activated. But insofar as he thought uh, Fleece as the, uh, the medicine man, the witch doctor, the magician, the shaman, uh, contained all these magical powers, uh, he was the object of a maternal transference where the fantasy is the mother has all this wonderful warm milk that can alleviate all my discomfort and suffering. Mm. And um, I guess the, that pre-Oedipal transference is the one that would be more difficult for Freud yes. to verbalize or to yeah. get at? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, for Freud, uh, I mean, one of the last things Freud said, I mean, this way I almost end the book. Uh, he says that there is a limit uh, to how far a man can go in psychoanalysis because to put himself on the couch and put himself in a passive position to a, another, to, a, to an analyst, a male or female, uh, men men, because of their fear of their passive homosexual female wishes, can never allow themselves to really give themselves over to analysis. Sure. And he called this the biological red uh, bedrock, which constituted the limit to how far an analysis could go. Now, my point is, because of his own discomfort with his own passive feminine wishes, Freud couldn't explore them sufficiently. So rather right. than saying this, uh, this, these, this fear of passivity is bedrock, what he should have done, and what we're trying to do today, is to analyze that fear of passivity and to understand where it uh, arises in uh, male development. And in the partly in man's relationship to his uh, uh, in uh, separating from his mother, right? It wasn't a biological bedrock; it was his own personal uh, bedrock, which may have been shared by a lot of other people, but uh, and and can be related to his all the trauma in his early childhood, right? And uh, by saying it's bedrock, what you do is you arrest curiosity, you right. arrest, arrest exploration. It, like everything else, should have been a topic for psychoanalytic exploration. He couldn't yeah. get curious about his own uh, re uh, rejection of the uh, passive female position. He couldn't get curious enough. And if he, yeah, I understand that. There's so much I want to cover, and we're running out of time. But I, I, um, I wondered, you know, another thing that you get into is his illness and his terrible illness. It, and the amount of pain he went through and his confronting death. And I was really um, taken by your description of the, his grandson's game, the Fort Dog game, which I, I never really seen the significance of. I wondered if you could uh, tell our listeners about that. Uh, well, you know, he observed his grandson uh, playing this game over and over again, where he would have a spool of yarn and throw it and then retrieve it. And he would yell for it when he threw it. And then when he put it back in, he would call, he would, uh, he would uh, say, da. So they're here. And mm -hmm. the, uh, boy had a very good relationship with his mother and uh, he actually handled his separations from her very well and would play this game uh, when she was gone and Freud as well as his mother became very curious about the meaning of it and 
what Freud came to conclude or to to theor to uh, hypothesize was that in this game uh, the child was reenacting and overcoming the separation. So the throwing the spool was a separation, and the bringing it back in was mastering it. Mm. And this was the key to something that he saw as a fundamental mechanism in psychic life and in culture. By doing this, he was not just mastering it, but he was mastering it by symbolizing it and acting it. Yes, he called his, uh, Freud calls his grandson's great cultural achievement. Great cultural achievement. Because, uh, I mean, one of the great uh, facts of the human condition that we all have to face, and one of the great tasks is how we are going to uh, deal with all of the uh, inevitable separations and losses that we have to uh, uh experienced life. And Freud's answer is that the way we learn to deal with them and the way we make them tolerable is through symbolic activity, by symbolizing them. And play. Yeah, play. Yeah, Winnicott went on to say by play. I mean, there's a a, uh, intimate connection between symbol of play and symbolization. And uh, by doing this, uh, we not only learn to tolerate separation and loss, but we also create meaning out of it. I mean, symbolizing right. loss is the source of meaning for Freud. Right. That, that's fascinating. And there are so, that's just one nugget. There are so many others. I wish I could talk to you about more, but we are at the end of our 50-minute hour. Because um, we analysts say, time's up. Uh, which is terribly traumatic uh, for a pre-edible patient. Uh, But I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. I really enjoyed the book. And um, thank you for appearing on New Books and Psychoanalysis. I also want to thank you for asking very insightful questions. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you.